wellnesscouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. Welcome to Backchat, exploring the five pillars of health with Dr. Paul Bergamo and Dr. Anthony Coxon. Welcome to Backchat. My name is Paul Bergamo and it's great to be here in our next podcast. Backchat explores the five pillars of health. It refers to being your best in thinking, eating, moving, sleeping, and also in your neurology. Today, we're going to explore the health pillar of being your best in your moving. To help me, it's a great pleasure, I introduce my fellow chiropractor and co-host, Anthony Coxon. Hi there, Paul. Great to be here again. How have you been, mate? Good? I've been fantastic. I've been fantastic. Excellent. What have you been up to? Doing a bit of reading, actually. You know, as as chiropractors, we, we're required to read a bit, and people who want to are students of the world, most of my stuff I read, I don't know about you these days, is online. I okay, find. yeah. Is that your the situation? Well, you can do it any time, any place, can't you, which is handy. It has yeah. flexibility, but I must admit, my favourite time is when I've got the old-fashioned mag out. Just the, the, right. the age <laughs> newspaper, yes. cup of tea on the side there, and just read through. That's 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 my perfect way to start the this, day. Is this a Sunday morning, or is this an everyday thing? Well, Sunday morning's a regular thing. I yeah. try to fit in during the week. It doesn't always work. In right. fact, it uh, doesn't that often work, but I was very... <laughs> Grateful for it working not so long ago. Okay. Um, I came across a terrific article um, about walking. And, of course, this is of intimate interest to people like us as chiropractors. Um, It's pretty much the mantra for for chiropractors and many uh, physical therapists to encourage people to walk. We know that uh, sitting is the new smoking. But... um, but there was a, this particular article was really caught my interest because it looked at it from a perspective that I hadn't considered, in particular uh, access and accessibility to public transport and how that can influence health. Okay, yeah, right. So you did let me know about that, and then we talked about a particular study and a particular lady who actually we're going to have on our call later later on the show, and. The particular study that was the Health Promotion Journal of Australia study. Which, That's the one. Yep. Two months back. Only just recently published, which had an impact on incidental physical activity in Melbourne. And uh, there were surveys done. Uh, there was a lot of interesting research that came out of it. And even just one aspect here where the paper reported at least 30 minutes of moderate physical activity five times a week is associated not only with improved cardiovascular outcomes and lower risks of type 2 diabetes, but also in lower risks of colon cancer, breast cancer, hip fracture, depression, anxiety, dementia, fractures and falls. That's a lot of reasons to start walking, isn't it? It is. And, you know, today I had my first class with my students at RMIT teaching nutrition. And we actually mentioned this today in the class because of looking at all the ways of how we can as chiropractors and other health professionals help our patients just by starting with some raw substrates, you know, exercise, food, and it can make massive differences. Uh, so, look, it's very compelling. And I reckon, you know, if you look at our, our our health budget and we look at our health minister, Susan Lay, for instance, I reckon it should be, be good for her to be aware of this sort of data, don't you think? Well, I think we spend so much money at the end of uh, healthcare rather than at the beginning. And simply by, in this research, which was really fascinating, it showed that by simply making um, uh public transport more accessible right. uh, to Melburnians. And this is only, we're talking about the, the database within Melbourne only, okay. that up to 300 lives a year could be saved, reducing health costs by over $35 million. Wow. So it's, a, it's an important subject, that's for sure. It's nearly a life a day, isn't it, you know, in the context of a year. That's amazing. Look, and we're very fortunate to have the primary author on the call tonight, Dr. Margaret Beavis. Margaret is a, is a Melbourne GP with 25 years' experience. She's a senior examiner 
with the Royal Australian College of General Practitioners and teaches at, in the medical faculty at Melbourne University. She has a strong in- interest in public health and has just recently completed a Master's in Public Health at Deakin University, looking at the health economies of urban transport. She recently published her research through Deakin University on the health and economic benefits of physical activity in Melbourne commuters. Margaret's also a, uh, currently the National President of the Medical Association for the Prevention of War, and she also stood for the Greens in 2014, in the 2014 state elections in Victoria. So she's a very busy lady. And that's quite a resume, isn't it, Paul? So, Margaret, um, it is a great pleasure that we welcome you to Backchat. Thank you for making time to speak with us. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for your interest. Now, there's lots of uh, little points that we want to discuss with you, and, of course, we're going to go into the whole walking thing uh, shortly. But what's uh, pricked my attention first up, what is the Medical Association for Prevention of War? Um. We're an organisation of health professionals that are really, we're turning 40 next year and we're working to promote peace. We're working, I mean, really the underlying principle is things like working on diplomacy. More diplomacy and international aid means there will be less conflict in the long run. And we, it's sort of a, it's a, it's a really a, a, an application of prevention for war, which is a really huge health issue. I mean, at the moment we're working on things like a treaty to ban nuclear weapons which is really strongly supported by the Red Cross. I mean, they said that we couldn't do it for landmines, but we did. Um, wow. And we just need to get people to change their mindset about things like that. Things like the arms trade treaty, um, until a little while ago, um, bananas were more regulated to sell internationally than, than handguns and weapons. So the arms oh, trade treaty, wow. which we've been yeah. working on, has come in and now we're trying to get that um, properly em- implemented. Uh, We're working on a number of projects. I could keep going, but as I said, it's open to all health professionals, and if anyone wants to look at our website, it's www.mapw.org.au. Excellent. Um, And we've also got a Facebook page. And and that's just very brief. That's not government support, is it? That's that's membership-based, isn't it? Is that right? It's the membership base that actually supports our ability to run these campaigns, yes. Excellent. Now, look, if we also now go into another facet of your career as a a, uh, successful GP and medical educator, what... What sort of motivated you to go from dealing with, in the coalface with patients, which you still do, I understand, but then move into research? Um, look, uh, well, things like Australia-wide, we know in the last in the decade from 2001 to 2011, diabetes incidence doubled um, and we're on track to triple, which is a huge health issue. Depression is um, supposed to be sort of one of the really massive health issues that we're facing, a tsunami of depression. Um, And I thought it would be really useful for advocacy to get some solid figures about what actually, if you applied it to a population like Melbourne, what, how many deaths would you save? I mean, if you look at sort of uh, the road toll, if you think of this in terms of sort of hidden road toll in a way, Mm -hmm. 272 more people dying every year. Um, then if, if it was if it was in the road toll, they'd do enormous measures to try and prevent it. Absolutely. So I'm, I'm really trying to just put some hard numbers on the Melbourne population that if we did manage to get people being more active, um, what lives, what illnesses and how many dollars would be saved. And, Mark, what's really interesting, isn't it, that the if we look at, say, uh, government, government campaigns of public health, road trauma is a very successful campaign done by here. And I understand from... When I when I was doing my studies at Deakin years ago with nutrition, uh, in doing a health promotion subject, it was uh, it was a product that actually was used by other countries overseas in Europe. It was that that successful, so it probably gets a lot more profile than this sort of work, wouldn't you say? Oh, absolutely. I think 
people can understand it because um, this prevention is much harder to understand because it's something that doesn't happen. Whereas someone sees a death on the road, people can see that. They know yeah. people are being killed on yeah, the road. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. Um, it's, it's much more visible so people can get their head around it. We only um, have to... But Australia has been a world leader in both things like the road toll and things like cigarette um, prevention, yeah. just tobacco yeah. control. Correct. Yeah, we can stand up tall in both of those areas, can't we? Absolutely. Definitely. It's terrific. So yep. getting on to your particular research you did at um, university, maybe at Deakin University, let's maybe take it a step back and, and why is it important for people to be physically active? Let's get that fundamental question answered. Well, over the last decade or so, there's just been more and more evidence coming out. I mean, if you look, the, the benefits from 35 minutes, 30 minutes a day of exercise, so you're getting five days a week, 150 minutes in a week of exercise. The benefits are huge. I mean, in terms of heart attack, you reduce by 20%, um, diabetes, stroke, bowel cancer, you reduce by 30%. These are huge figures. Breast cancer by 20%, Massive. depression by yeah. 20 to 30%. And the list goes on and on. I mean, the World Health Organization came out in 2012 when they sort of did a huge review of all this data from a certain num huge number of research papers and described it as a best buy. That, In other words, it was a really cheap way of improving health at a population level. Look at – and. Is is that something as a as a, a GP with your experience? Is that um, some of the challenges you see with your patients as well, sort of one to one? How to how you know the, they may put pressure on you to come in and say, uh, "Please, Doctor Beavers, can you give me a medication that will fix this?" Uh, and versus perhaps you know the sort of hard work that they may need to try and do by exercising more, for instance, which could help them purely without sometimes needing those services. I think it's really important to give people a choice and explain to them what their choices are. So if okay. someone comes in with high blood pressure, you can say to them, okay, if you can lose five kilos or if you can work walk 30 minutes five days a week, we may not need a pill. You know, go away and do that for two months. Come back and we'll yeah, try again. Yeah, that's great. That's yeah. That's really good. Uh, do you find that attitudes have changed much in recent times? I mean, obviously – um, as practitioners, we're more empowered because this research is there. So we've got something to demonstrate to patients to show them that this really does make a difference. But do you think attitudes to exercise and physical activity have changed much over the last 5, 10 or 20 years? I think people are gradually learning about it. I mean, people are quite shocked when you tell them all those benefits. I mean, if, if exercise was a pill, our entire population would be on it. Yes, <laughs> great, health so point. huge. Yeah, um, And and I think I think it's gradually getting out there. Okay, and and I suppose you know when we look at it, do you think it's the time poor person that sort of comes back to you in your practice that says, "I can't fit the exercise in"? Is that sort of the the barrier to them perhaps doing more exercise? I think people are so busy these days. I mean, you've got – there's so many people trying to fit so much into their lives, especially people with kids or really busy jobs. I mean, I think that's one of the reasons that this commuting can be time-effective. If you can maybe start doing a more active way to get to work, it may save you from having to go to the gym at night. Oh, yeah. um, so it can be a time-saver, but, but it is it – is, um, it is difficult for people to be when when lives are busy to, to try and prioritise this, try and sort of schedule it in and fit it all in. So back to your research, can you so can you take take uh, take our listeners uh, 
who will be over will be in Australia and also be overseas as well. Um, can you sort of contextualize your research or just tell us a bit about it so our listeners can understand what work you did? Okay, well, it's sort of, if you like, a bit of a GP sort of research because I've taken a really big study that was done by the Victorian Department of Transport and I've taken a really brilliant piece of health economics that was done by the Deakin Health Economics Unit and then I've sort of joined it in the middle with my knowledge of health. So I've basically pitched two huge pieces of work and then joined them together with my own information. So the Department of Transport was about 30,000 people in Melbourne and they were asked how they got around each day. Um, I then looked at who was getting their 30 minutes of exercise a day and also I looked in detail as to whether that walking in public transport terms was enough to count as moderate exercise because a lot of people think walking to the bus or the tram doesn't count but in fact some very detailed research in in the US shows that it is clearly enough to classify as moderate exercise. Okay. Um, I then looked at the health impacts of what benefits we knew that the 30 minutes a day would give. Um, There's been two very huge American and Canadian reviews of the literature that um, brought together a huge amount of data. Um, And then I plugged it into the health economics model, which, as I said, was a terrific model that took sort of real pay rates in Australia, real health costs in Australia, sort of retirement ages, all sorts of factors that were very complicated and, and very detailed, and then worked out just actually how many lives would be saved, how many cases of disease would be prevented, um, and how many how many dollars would be saved. Now, Anthony, isn't that amazing what this lady's done? I mean, she's actually synthesised, from what my understanding is, different taken different amounts of significant data, put her personal personal um, interest and knowledge, then then gone to literature as well, and then synthesised then to produce. Is that my understanding, Margaret? Is that how you? I've basically it? piggybacked on sort of three big areas of research and just sort of joined the dots really, just put them all together. So going on from that, you, you, the really thing that struck me was that uh, I guess the results of your sh- uh, research showed that people who had less access to this um, public transport, which typically in a place like Melbourne, for example, is more in the outer areas of Melbourne, possibly the low so- lower socioeconomic areas. And you're making the link from uh, not necessarily from just um, – people who have lower incomes and may perhaps use food as entertainment or may not have as much accessibility to sporting venues or those sorts of things, you've really found that it's the access to public transport that was really the key difference here. Um, when I looked at the research, I found if you compared people who are living in the inner city um, area and areas like Albert Park and East Melbourne and those sorts of places, they were six times more likely to get their 30 minutes of exercise a day than someone in the outer suburbs. Wow. And that was after you factored in variables like age and occupation and income. So where people live is really important. And I think it's a combination of uh, transport availability, but also in the outer suburbs, the spread of destinations makes car travel sometimes the only option for a trip. Yeah. So, so, so it's, it's destination density as well as transport availability. And I think if we look at it just generally speaking, if we asked the general population, a lot of us would think that with in the city there'd be less exercise. And when, yeah. I, when, when I read this first, I thought, no, this does, this conflicts with me. I, right. I, I would have thought it would have been the other way around. When we've got bigger spaces, bigger areas, 
Um, wide open spaces of country living, yeah. or regional or rural living, as yes. opposed to the high density yes. within the city. But it's the opposite. So. Well, I think what Margaret's tapped into here is the concept of incidental exercise, you know, yes. and that's where I think we, again, the, maybe the mentality for exercise guidelines is, you know, you've got to go to the gym, you've got to pound hard, you've got to sweat like you wouldn't believe, you've got to lift heavy weights, and then you have ticked, yes, you have achieved exercise. Well yeah. done, clap, excellent, good job. But in effect, what Margaret's research is showing is that it's, you know, it's the concept of parking your car from a fair distance to the entrance, yep. making that walk. Yep. Instead of taking the lift, the escalators, walk up the stairs. This sort of incidental yeah. exercise, which... Just building which that into good. your day. So you're not really thinking about going to the gym or going for a run. It's just part of what you do as your normal activities of daily living. And if you think of the local commuter in the city, they just, what do they do? They just think, I've got to go to work, I'll get on my push bike and I'll go to work. Or I'll walk a kilometre to the station and I'll go to work. So that is all added up. Whereas we in the outer suburbs think, well, I've got to go, okay, to the shops, I'll get in my car and I'll take that and thereby miss all that sort of possibility. Is that what I'm understanding, Margaret? Is that right? Yeah, that's pretty right. When you looked at... um car drivers, they were advertising, they were <laughs> averaging um, between 8 and 10 minutes exercise each day. If you looked at people who used public transport, um, even if they drove to the station, they would still get 31 minutes a day. If they walked or biked okay. to the station, they were getting 41 minutes a day. And if you look at people who just walked or just cycled, they were averaging 38 minutes a day. So it's really a matter of thinking about how you get around. Yeah, right. And one of the things that I, I'm impressed with the way you've sort of approached all this is uh, you, you're a GP, so you see these things happen and have for, for many years. You've recognised a real need here, so you've gone out and done the research and uh, your involvement in politics, obviously you're trying to push um, you know, a, a change at a political level so, you know, so that we can build healthy cities and healthy suburbs. Yes, I think, I think public health is all about making healthy choices easier and you know there's such a opportunity here for long term making the, the community more active I mean it's not saying don't use your car it's just saying give people the choice that some trips they use the car and some trips they don't so it's just a matter of, of thinking about how we design our cities so that you take a long term view so that you end up with a healthier population so so as I said Margaret I mean you know you've gone you're still in primary practice, you do it, you've done your research and now your next step is the advocacy type role. Can you sort of tell, explain to our listeners what you think maybe local and or state governments can do in light of what you've researched? Well, there's quite a lot. Um, it's a matter of sort of uh, helping to get people more active. So bike paths and bike lanes, um, Footpaths in some of the outer suburbs, some places don't even have footpaths, which makes it really difficult to walk around. Um, prioritising bus routes, you know, bike parking at the station, um, building train lines as well as roads. It's a matter of factoring in the health benefits when you're when you're looking at these cost benefit analyses that people are so fond of. To to factor in what it means to have a healthy population and how there are really big benefits in giving people a choice as how they get around. It's not just in the outer suburbs, a lot of people are sort of car dependent. And mm, if you can make people yeah. sort of able to choose that some days they need to take the car and some days they just don't, they can leave it behind. It's a big deal. So, Margaret, you know, whose responsibilities are different d- 
divisions here. So, like PARS, is it is that local council? Is that state government? Is it federal? Can you can you enlighten our listeners a bit with that? Okay, it's not simple. No, I'd imagine, um, I imagine it never is. No, <laughs> and I'm sure when it's wrong, the uh, one party blames the other. But when it's right, they'll take the, they'll take the prize. If that's correct. Okay, the big ticket items like train lines, um, they're state largely state funded, right. but they can get money from federal. Um, okay. For yeah. the smaller and bus routes um, are a combination. I think councils have a bit to say about bus routes and bus lines. I think there's also some state planning. Um, what we really need at a state level is, is, I mean, Vic Roads for many years has been a tremendous piece of engineering expertise and planning that has planned out our roads for decades. We yeah. really need a Vic Roads for public transport. Yeah. In fact, a Vic, a Vic Roads for transport that takes into account um, public transport and what you can do if you provide good public transport, you won't need so many roads. So, yes, some areas need roads, but if you can put in at a state level more um, rail lines, more bus routes, that's a huge thing. And then at council level, it is, it's down to the footpaths and the bike lanes and, you know, getting a good lollipop man next to the to the school um, so that the kids can walk to school safely or better better crossings. Or I mean, so yeah. it, it's a complicated mix, you know, for the railway system to put more bike storage in. There's, there's so many things, so many potential interventions. It's, it's actually sort of um, a bit like the road toll, a whole suite of interventions that, that will make a difference in the long run. Now, Margaret, I have to concede with you, you've made me a bit nervous. And, and the reason why I've made a bit nervous is my father-in-law was, had just retired from working for 30 years at Vic Roads. So yep. um, he, he's going to be on to me when he listens to this. So I, I better support that, <laughs> that, that, that uh, his work and his design has been fantastic for those 30 years. And I, well, I certainly don't want to take that away from him. Well, she has said Vic Roads does a great job. So oh, we, just, we just... They, they do a great job. We just need the, the you know, cycling, walking, public transport ah, yes. version of Vic Roads. Yes, to, uh, exactly. To yes, no, stuff. I feel better so, now. I'm sure yeah. I feel better. That's let's, good. Let, let's not bad. You know, I think <laughs> the engineers, I took my hat off to them. They've planned very well for the long term. It's just been focused on roads instead of on people. And look, just very, just very quick. Interestingly, I mean, he's done work over in India in third world countries and they've tried to yep. pick the, the those countries. They've got roads that have that are just rocks, you know, they're not roads. And, um, you know, I suppose we lend our expertise in these situations to overseas. So, so Margaret, I guess we've got a bit of an idea of what idea would be. Is there any cities in the world that you believe have really got it right, you know, that they've made the correct decisions in terms of the balance between car and public transport, density of living, and and if so, are these cities that have uh, lower rates of obesity and diabetes and so on? There's actually a lot of European cities, um, Copenhagen, Amsterdam, a number of cities in Germany. Um, there was a big piece of research that looked at how many kilometres a year people walked in Europe, and that was 380 kilometres a year for Europeans compared to 140 kilometres a year in the US. The rates of obesity um, and overweight are significantly less, um, and there are better health health outcomes. So... Um, if you, for instance, if you look at the German population, almost 30% get their 30 minutes daily compared to about 15% mm, right. here. So yeah. there are certainly health benefits at a population level. Do you, do you think that's, I mean, obviously people uh, often talk about Europe as being an, an ideal for those um, sorts of scenarios. Do you think that has something to do with the fact that their population is already much denser than, say, Australia, Canada, the US and so on? I think one of the areas where Australia uh, or Melbourne, I can really only speak for Melbourne personally, 
the density of development is really important. I mean, you don't want a whole lot of high-rise because that can overwhelm the existing infrastructure, but putting medium-rise, say, three and four storeys close to transport nodes like train stations can be a really tremendous health intervention because people will leave their car at home and just jump on the train. Um, And I think we need to think seriously about sort of the density of our suburbs. I mean, Melbourne is 30th biggest city geographically in the world and Australia's fastest growing city. And yet our outer suburbs have really poor public transport availability. Um, So I think we need to recognise that those outer suburbs in future may be much less healthy than than suburbs where you've got, you know, three or four storey buildings around the train stations that sort of build a community that's not so car dependent. And have you taken any of your research to government at this stage or your that's your sort of plan of this year, is it? Is that is that where it's at at this point in time? Um, I suppose I've put out a media release when it came out and I think some people will have picked it up. I've had some very good responses and I've done a number of interviews and had a number of articles published. So I'm hoping that government will pick that information up. I don't – I think that the – Department of Transport has some very good researchers here, and I'm sure I've actually sent them. I sent the Department of Transport a copy of my research because they were very helpful and very generous in letting me use their initial research. So I think they're certainly aware of it. Um, it now comes down to sort of the political realities of implementation. Yeah, and I, and I suppose that's yeah. I mean, it is the first step exposure, and then I suppose trying to to get involved with key people who make decisions and and hopefully influencing budgetary spends. Is that is that sort of the the plan, if it's possible. Yeah, I think I think the other thing to keep in mind with this research is that the dollar figures are incredibly um, low. The, the, the health economics model that I used valued a human life at three months' pay. So um, it's also really low because it's only applying to five diseases when we know many, many more diseases are both treated and prevented um, by exercise. I mean... Yeah, there is so much that exercise does. It's 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 astounding, and, and I think that's um that's a message I'm trying to get across. Which is which you know, if we go to the point of comparing, say, you know, often with pedometers, people talk about the magic ten thousand steps in a day, and and your your sort of look at research with uh, thirty minutes times five times a week. Yep. Do we do we do we think that may be enough? I mean, is there enough? Given our sedentary sort of lifestyle, with that, do we do we then maybe need to go high? Do you think just as someone who's sort of visioning this sort of work, or you know, what's your thoughts there? Um, one of the most encouraging parts of this whole research is graphs that came out of the big U- American, the U.S. studies, and the Canadian studies, both of which reviewed an enormous body of literature, um, and both of them came out with an identical graph showing that that first thirty minutes. In other words, getting up off the couch for that 30 minutes right. is is got the greatest value. Certainly if you exercise more or you exercise harder, the benefits increase. But the biggest benefit is that first 30. The bang for buck is really in that first 30 minutes. I mean, more is better, yeah. but getting up off the couch is best of all. Well, that, that'll be encouraging for a lot of people, I think, who find are either time poor or just aren't naturally inclined to exercise. To know that it's really they're going to get so much out of just those th- first 30 minutes is, is, is great. Because don't you, I mean, from your experience, Margaret, too, is that sort of mental psyche, isn't it, of, of just getting, making that transition to decide to do something, and basically, when 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 cognitively we decide to do something, 
and we do it, you know, we go for a walk 15 minutes one way, we're guaranteed to get 30 minutes. We've got our 30 minutes sorted. That's right. Uh, we're, you know, Absolutely. Don't, we're, t- we're don't turn it. around until you've walked at least 15 minutes. That's right. We've got to set a timer. So we've got to use the 15-minute clock. It goes bing, and now we stop, yeah. stop, do a U-turn, come back, and then here we are. But, you know, a lot of people unfortunately can't see that first step. But that research is pretty – that's pretty powerful stuff in the sense that if we recognise it's that first 30 minutes and it's probably – and I'm, I'm curious even uh, nutritionally and physiologically on insulin levels. I mean, just making changes there would be good in the sense of things as well, but also just the fact of just doing it, pass-fail test, doing it or not doing it in the first 30 is a critical part of that. Uh, Margaret, do you think um, from uh, your experience with uh, your medical colleagues, is, is, is this information being passed down from GPs um, to their patients on a regular basis and are GPs getting enough exposure to this kind of information? I think um, exercise has been promoted amongst the general practice college for quite a while. They've done things like um, exercise prescriptions, um, and I think that's that's they recognise the importance of it. I suppose my spin on it is trying to build it into your life. I mean, ten percent of trips are less than a kilometre. About nearly half of trips are less than five kilometres. So, what I'm trying to do is to get people to sort of just have it happen incidentally in their lives so that it isn't actually I'm going to go and exercise, it's I'm going to go to the shops or I'm going to go and pick up the kids from school or, you know, thinking about what what they can do that will build the exercise in just as part of their day-to-day life. So it's just, it's, it's just I suppose for me, it's reframing it as part of a routine thing. Yep, and a very important reframing, that's for sure. And, and, and maybe that concept of reframing, can you explain that for, because we've got our audience is going to be some young practitioners, going to be some lay people. Can you explain that health psychology reframing concept? Well, I think if you think about a trip and perhaps try and leave the car at home, just think about if I left the car at home for that short trip, what would I do? How would I do it? Um, and And by changing your mindset of, always jumping in the car to thinking, okay, sometimes I'm going to leave the car at home. You can work out which trips are easier for you to do and and often um, you'll find that actually they're much more enjoyable as well. Instead of sitting in traffic, you can actually walk past all the traffic and, you know, thumb your nose at the sort of 20 cars parked at the, at the traffic light. But it's really a matter of making it routine. Okay. Now that's, that's uh, sound, sound advice. And look, I, and, I, and I suppose as chiropractors – as with GPs, as all health professionals, our, our barrier with our patients is really time, isn't it? You know, how can we, how can we impact enough uh, to help the decision-making process of our patients or our clients that we see? How can we uh, build that in our time period of our consultation to make change? Can you give some advice on how you handle that sort of situation? Because you've got the same dilemma as, as we have, and uh, I'd love to hear with your experience how, how you do it. I'm lucky in that I work in an area that actually has pretty good public transport. So in terms of talking to people, I sort of ask them, um, you know, what do they get up to during the day exercise-wise? I then sort of talk to them what, what do they think are possibilities in terms of getting a bit more exercise. So try and find out what resources they have and, and sometimes um, suggest maybe one day a week you could try a different way of getting to work or a different way of doing things. So just start small. Okay. Um, yeah. and, then, and then once they start small, 
um, they start to think about, well, maybe another day is better. Yeah. You know, you, you gradually add it in. Yeah. Just baby steps. Um, I, one thing you mentioned uh, a, a little while back was uh, in the example of blood pressure and how you were giving people choices, whether they could start on medication or yeah, they right. could yes. go away and work on losing some weight and uh, improving their physical activity. As a practitioner, um, and I know, let's take the example perhaps of blood pressure. Where does it? Where does that point where no, we definitely have to get you on the med straight away, or when are you comfortable saying, you know what, let's just try and manage this uh, in a more natural way and, and see how we go? I know it's, it's a difficult question, but but give it's it your best good, shot. It's a good question. It's a good question. Yeah. Okay, I should I should also say that I also say to people as well as the weight and the exercise, the other two things I like them to. Think about uh, salty foods and sauces and alcohol. Right. Okay. Oh, yeah. There are four big factors in blood pressure. There that they're the four real. Yes. There's lots of factors in blood pressure, but they're the big ones. Yes, yeah, sure. Uh, so having put that to them, it then is really a matter of whether they're just a whisker over where I'd like them to be, or whether they're substantially over where they like to be. Yeah. If they're substantially higher than is really safe, I say, okay, let's think about putting you on a pill. But if you can do these things, we may be able to take you off it in six months' time right, or years' yeah, time. Yep, so yep. it's really a question of how high their blood pressure is at the time they initially come. And, and also you always take the blood pressure three times. I never start or you're not supposed yes, to start any yes. treatment. You've had three separate readings. And that's on three separate occasions, not in one visit, obviously, you're talking about. Well, also, ideally, you get them to take their blood pressure somewhere away from the clinic. I mean, three separate occasions, yes but also taken maybe by a chemist or by a friend who's got a blood pressure machine or some other place because we know that for, I can't remember what the percentages are, something like 15% of the population have what's called white coat hypertension, which means they only have blood pressure when they're at the doctors. Yes. I think you're you're pretty relaxed. Sorry, mate. So you're pretty relaxed, sir. I think you wouldn't give too many white coat hypertension. Maybe, maybe just patients. five or ten percent for Margaret. Yeah, yeah. I, think, <laughs> I, I don't think I don't think people be walking in petrified saying, "Yeah, I think they'd be thinking, hey, this is going to be a a, a, a really in, a, a really inspiring consultation.'" So, uh, look, what I found was really interesting. What you said there too is that you also perhaps put in the in the mind map of a patient the fact that. Uh, you know, if they're going to be on a medication, it may not be for life. You know, it's yes. it's a situation where, hey, we're going to review this in X period of time, mm. and you do your job, work hard, exercise, come back, let's review, let's take the blood pressure on three separate occasions, or maybe it might be different parts of the consultation time, start and end, uh, and let's review it. And is that what I'm hearing there, Margaret? Yeah, I, I like to take it on three separate. Separate occasions, so so yeah, getting them to do it at home or getting them to do it at a chemist or something, and, and come back with them. Um, yeah, you 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 work with people and, and give them choices and and make them recognise that um, there are choices. The choices are there. I mean, for some people, their blood pressure just progresses, and you end up with you know one agent, then two agents, then three agents, then four agents over the space of ten or twenty years. But um, for other people, you know, they'll, they'll take on board what you've said, they'll lose some weight, they'll cut out a lot of salt from their diet, they'll um, maybe drink a little bit less, um, exercise more, and it's it's fantastic. It's really impressive. And I think the important thing is that we've got to, you know, for for practitioners of all persuasions, it's, it's giving, I think, the key message is that, that option, isn't it, for our yeah, patients. Absolutely. You know, if, you, if, if we say, you know, it's only one way or the highway, well, then, you know, really the patient's either going to listen to what you say and do it or go and see someone else. But if they're given options... And also a sort of a bit of a matrix to explain how to get through it, review period of time or check it again, go do some hard work, come back, review, 
then suddenly also the patient's really part of their health, aren't they, you know? The patient needs to be empowered. At the end yeah, of the right. They have to course. feel like they have a sense of control and what Margaret's talking about definitely gives them that sense of sense of yeah. involvement in their own health care. Fantastic. So, Margaret, one of the things that we love to do, and we really, um, this information you've given our listeners to, uh, today is absolutely fantastic. We're not only interested in um, your knowledge base, but we're also interested in the person as well and uh, what inspires you. You've done some pretty incredible things in, in your lifetime. So is there been a, a particular experience or maybe a combination of experiences that really clicked with you and uh, resonated in a way that said, look, I'm definitely going to become a GP. I'm definitely going to go into research. I'm definitely going to go into politics, all which are, you know, tremendously big steps. Is there, is there something that really, you know, a really impactful experience that you could tell our listeners about? Um, there was a time when my kids were little, and um, my dad was dying, my father-in-law was slowly dying, my very beloved dog was dying. Wow. Um, the kid's goldfish one morning sort of flipped itself out of the bowl and died on the sink. Oh, goodness. The kids got up and they were, they were beside themselves. And I, I also had a brother who was seriously ill. And I just sort of thought, I'm just going to – you know, you only have one life. You've got to just do mm. in life what you want to do, yes. and work out where you can where you can be useful. Um, and so that was sort of, for me that was the the tipping point of saying, okay, I'm only going to work in general practice part time, and I'm going to do other stuff that really interests me. Yeah. So um, I suppose it was just coming to a point where everything was completely crappy, <laughs> and yeah, deciding yeah. that I was going to yeah. take something good out of that. Uh, what when was that approximately? What I mean, you've been in practice twenty five years. How, how just ballpark? When was that sort of period of time? How many years ago? Sort of was that? That was fifteen years. Fifteen years, yeah. 15 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Okay. It's and, amazing what comes out of adversity, though, isn't it? You know, sometimes when we're yeah. pushed to the back, and then that's when it really gives us our springboard to go forward again. Yeah. It's it's isn't it often sort of the message from the adversity, isn't it? You know, if the message, you, what you take from that adversity, mm. and like Margaret's situation there, you know. Uh, it it in a sense I suppose empowered her to make some changes and 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 a, a rethink and I think we all do that sometimes don't we and if we don't do it then what happens it, it goes the perhaps the wrong way so yeah and it's it's, it's thank you so much for sharing that Margaret that's 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 uh, very compelling now as we finish up Margaret can you perhaps give our listeners three take home sort of messages around uh, our back chat podcast tonight on the health pillar of moving. <laughs> At the risk of being a bit repetitive, I just say think about how you get around. Um, you know, just just look around what's around you that is possible that you can do, um, and just do a little bit to start with. Think about the trips you can leave your car at home. Um, okay. Yes. Just um, support plans locally if you've got if you've got a council if you're voting in council elections or you're voting in other state federal. Think about. What's being what what's being offered in terms of of improving your area, your neck of the woods, in terms of being able to be more active? Um, okay, yes. I think councils and state and federal governments, you know, good urban design should make your healthy choices easier, um, yeah. and in the long run, we'll end up with a much healthier community. Um, I suppose the other thing that that I haven't said much about, but is particularly with the mental illness side of things, depression and anxiety, that there's okay. evidence that's come out saying that um, certainly in mild to moderate depression, not so much in severe depression, but in mild to moderate depression, 30 minutes to 45 minutes exercise five days a week is equivalent to taking an antidepressant tablet. Wow. 
That's and powerful. so if you can get in early, things are feeling pretty mm-hmm. low and start walking or get a friend who you think is pretty low, get them to start exercising, you know, it can have huge benefits. And, yeah. I mean, you may need antidepressants as well, but who? it's just there's, there's – um, Sound a bit like a salesman, but I do think. No, 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 no. Believe you me, we are on the same page, right? So we really concur with this, and I think that is just an amazing, amazing concept when we look at that. And you know, it's it's it trying to sort of get a patient just to realise that to to set that timer to go that twenty minutes one way or another, and just and and you know, interestingly. Do that with a friend. And then suddenly, what are we opening up as well, Margaret? I mean, we're opening up a buddy system or a... Social connection. Social connection yeah. because, you know, depression, anxiety is really... It's, it's, the, biggest, it's, it's the biggest disease really in the world. And it's, it is really a... It's as much a disconnection syndrome, isn't it? It's really a disconnect with society where yep. I think this happens. Do, do you think? Yeah, I think, I think there's many causes. I certainly think social isolation is a cause. And I think people, you can... And exercise with a friend, it's great because then you have to go because you know someone's waiting outside for you. Yeah, Absolutely. that's Mot- right. Motivation is that's there. That's right. And suddenly, so from that, then you've got the connection. And suddenly, on a, on a couple of layers where someone maybe if they're depressed at home and not doing anything versus making that big step, it's going to really break through on a couple of layers, I reckon. I think so, definitely. Yeah, no, excellent. Well, look, thank you, Margaret, for sharing your wisdom and expertise with our back chat listeners tonight. Thank you for listening to Backchat. To stay abreast with updates with Backchat, please go to our Facebook page, www.facebook.com forward Backchat Podcast, or our Instagram page at Backchat Podcast. If you like this show, please leave a five-star rating on iTunes. We leave you with a thought. Be the best of what you do, and you will grow and inspire others around you. We look forward to catching up with you on our next Backchat Podcast. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.